Welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. On today's episode, we have psychedelic scientist and researcher Manesh join us for a conversation about how psychedelics affect our brain and their effectiveness in therapy. Together, we talk about some of the mythology around psychedelics, your serotonin receptors, and the importance of mindfulness and meditation in creating a positive mental state. Manesh brought so much information to this conversation and below you will find resources to the studies that he mentions during our conversation and also to his YouTube channel where he uploads videos if you want to learn more about his work that he's doing. So strap in, I promise it won't be too sciencey. There's a lot of hippie woo-woo, don't worry. <laughs> Hi and welcome to the show. So great to have you. Hey, thanks. It's so nice to be here. Yes. Okay. So let's start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. What do you do? What's your background? Yeah, so I am, I guess, third year PhD student uh, studying neuroscience at McGill University in Montreal. I guess you could say my research is looking at one, on one side, the default mode network, which is a particular set of brain regions involved in all these interesting functions. And then the other side is looking at how psychedelic drugs work in the brain. And so for that, I collaborate with some researchers over in London at the Imperial College uh, Center for Psychedelic Research. Collaborate with people like um, Robin Carhart-Harris and another guy named like Leor Roseman and Chris Timmerman, like a group of guys doing psychedelic brain imaging research down there. Mm. And so I'm really, you know, really interested in understanding psychedelics, how they work in the brain, um, how they can lead to these really, you know, radical, profound experiences that are so kind of divergent from our normal way of functioning and how they can be used in therapy. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, I kind of combine looking at the DFMO network in those to have a better understanding of the processes that underlie kind of our ability to relate and interact with the world. Okay, that's a lot of information. (laughs) Let's start with the baby, maybe the 101 of psychedelics. What are they doing on our brain? Right. So (laughs) I know, I know you got to start way back. (laughs) There's a lot of ways to answer that, right? So like, okay, first let's define what psychedelics are. So the main, when I say psychedelics, I'm mainly referring to LSD, psilocybin, which is a compound in magic mushrooms, and then let's say DMT. And there's also mescaline and a whole bunch of others, but actually mescaline works slightly different than the other three. So LSD, psilocybin, DMT. And the main way they work is they on a particular brain receptor called the serotonin 2A receptor. Mm-hmm. And this is a receptor, you know, involved in your serotonin system and it's distributed throughout your brain, but especially in areas of your cortex. So the more advanced part of your brain that are the most important essentially in regulating the whole brain's activity. So basically these receptors are located exactly where you need to be to make the most impact on the brain. Hmm. And it's actually the regions that are also most overlapping with the default mode network, which I could describe after. And so psychedelics, you take them. Uh, let's just talk about LSD just as an example. So you take LSD and it activates this receptor and, and many others, but this receptor is the most important. And at the level of the brain, um, it induces a number of things. So one, it seems to make the brain more interconnected. So if we think of the brain as a collection of different regions, they start talking to each other and interacting with each other in ways they weren't doing before in a way that's consistent with just like more communication being shared. Mm. We, we can say that very kind of simplistically and broadly, but that's the case. And then 
um, in addition to becoming more connected, they become more what's called entropic or more unpredictable in their activity. Hmm. So if we think about it, you know, like in order to have the stable perception of the world and kind of inhabit a world of some kind of order and stability, we need to have brain patterns stay within a particular range, right? Because mm-hmm. if your brain is going in all directions all the time, it's just going to be craziness. And so you need it to be constrained in order to survive. But psychedelics make it less constrained. Mm. So now you're entering in all sorts of these brain states and mental states that you're usually not entering into. And that's how you're able to escape your kind of tunnel vision that you live your life through and you know, have these radical experiences. So activates the 2A receptor, more interconnected, more entropic. And then the third one I can add, a last one for now, it also boosts neuroplasticity in the brain. So mm-hmm. it gives you, we can understand that is it gives your brain cells or neurons more resources to make new, new connections between each other and also reorganize and, and kind of alter existing ones. So we put into this interconnected state with greater entropy and complexity, and then you're able to have resources to create long lasting changes in your brain as well. Okay. A lot to unpack <laughs> there as well. I want to go even a little bit further. So the serotonin receptor, what is going on there? Is it kind of like an SSRI where it blocks the reuptake or what, how does this work? I've taken organic chemistry and biochem. So I have some working fundamental understanding, but not enough, but I would like to know more about like how it actually works in that receptor. For sure. For sure. So SSRIs, yeah, they, they, they're reuptake inhibitors. So they Mm -hmm. prevent serotonin from being, you know, uh, kind of cleared from the synapse. So it's like not it's active for longer periods right but psychedelics are very different they actually act as if they're serotonin and directly target the receptors Mm. so they don't necessarily increase serotonin in the brain so actually evidence showing that they decrease serotonin in certain parts of the brain in the cortex especially but rather than that they're acting as if they're serotonin and activating these receptors and actually activating the receptor is slightly different than receptor uh, than serotonin does so if someone takes SSRIs, do they have a different time on psychedelics then? So SSRIs, because they increase the amount of serotonin available at synapses, uh-huh. that serotonin actually competes with the psychedelic drug. So mm. if you're on an SSRI, it dulls the effects of psychedelics. Oh, mm. interesting. Just because there's not as many receptors there that are able to take the psychedelic compounds exactly. in your brain. It's competing with the serotonin, yeah. Oh, fascinating. So how is it different than serotonin why is it such a different i mean that's a hard question i guess huh we don't really know all of it it would get very technical fast we could say that it activates different cellular mechanisms in the neuron Mm. so like when uh when serotonin or anything you know hits a receptor and activates it what that does it leads to changes within the neuron different chemical pathways and so on and so when um serotonin does it it activates different intracellular pathways Hmm. Than, than psychedelics. Okay. But but like, again, this is like kind of at the forefront. So we really don't know that much at this level. Mm. Do we know what exactly gives it the hallucinogenic properties? I know we know, you know, the actual compound, but do we know how it works or how that mm-hmm. process happens? It's interesting because there are some drugs which activate the receptor, the two-way mm-hmm. receptor, but don't have psychedelic properties. Mm, like what? And, um, oh, like what? I won't be able to give you a name, but they're, they're like very experimental kind of drugs they use in rats, this kind of okay, thing. Okay, got it. Uh, not necessarily that they're available to humans uh, that people would just take, but it gets very technical. And I don't know the details of the intracellular pharmacology, to mm-hmm. be honest. Uh, there's something called beta arrestin, which is something that seems to be specific to 
uh, psychedelic two-way agonists as opposed mm -hmm. to non-psychedelic two-way agonists. Okay. Um, but again, this is like stuff coming out right now on characterizing mm -hmm. this stuff. So it's like, it's very little known and it, it's hard to carry out these studies, right? Right. Because? Because if you do it in rats and not humans, and, and you have to, basically it involves to know whether, you know, the way it's affecting the receptor in rats, it involves these very elaborate studies, mm -hmm. opening up their brains and so on. And yeah, it's just like very hard to get funding for. And it's like, uh, it's not the easiest uh, research to do. And there's only a handful of researchers who are doing it these days. Which is so sad to me just to see that we have such a powerful substance available and we don't know enough of all of its properties, how it works and what sort of benefit in medicine we could become, you know, have from this because there's just so much that needs to be done on that front of studying it and understanding more. And yeah, what could we unlock in terms of knowledge about the brain if we could figure this sort of stuff out? Yeah, and research is ongoing. And like, I think we know perhaps, yeah, we know very little because like in rats, it's kind of crazy. The psychedelic experience in rats mm -hmm. is measured in terms of how much they twitch their head. <laughs> it's really, it's called the head twitch response. And it's, it's, it's because consistently when you give them a psychedelic, you know, LSD, psilocybin, whatever, they kind of twitch their head a lot more. And then that's supposed to index psychedelic drug effects. And, um, and then they use rats in these, these kind of elaborate models to say, oh, this is a depressed rat and, you mm. know, give it a psychedelic and it's not performing this behavior. Therefore, it's not depressed. Mm. And then, you know, when you generalize up to a human, it's like depression is this complex disorder that could, could take so many different types. And there's a whole psychological experiential component to it. Right. And obviously the experience, psychedelic experience, we don't measure that. And people are twitching their head. It's like mm -mm. extremely complex eternal experience. Right. So right. Stuff like that makes this kind of rat studies very difficult as well, because you don't know, uh, you really don't know the behavioral effects. You don't know if they're tripping or not. Even. Mm. It's just like when I said like there's two agonists that don't produce a trip, it's because they don't produce the head twitch head response twitch. in rats. Wow. So this is what I mean. It's like, you know, it's very hard. Interesting. I mean, my question would be how, and this is maybe more of a basic question of how do we know the rats have a brain that's as similar to us? Uh, in terms of like the ability to see hallucinations and other pieces like that, do we know that we we don't know? Yeah, we, we just know that this reset they have the receptor for it, and they it's located do. Okay. in particular regions, and it becomes activated. Yeah, we can't say anything about their experience. Right, of course, because we can't talk to rats. First off, hope that they're not having a bad trip, and that's what the head twitch is—just like a really bad rat nightmare. Yeah, who knows, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It makes me yeah. <laughs> Like take enough acid with the rat and you will get into experience or something. <laughs> well, then maybe they could speak to you then and we could actually have this full discourse. That might be the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've unlocked the secret. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's fascinating that we just don't know this stuff. But I don't know what other, are there other sciencey level conversations that you feel like people would benefit from understanding of psychedelics? Uh, yeah. Obvi yeah, obviously a lot of people aren't going to become neuroscientists. So, you know, that's not necessarily the point, but I do think it's important to talk about like the basic chemistry of this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I could talk about one of the latest uh, theories on what the serotonin 2A receptor is for. Sure, like, let's hear it. Because, you know, why does it exist? You know, it didn't exist so we could take mushrooms and trip, right? Yeah. It existed for something else. And so the idea is that, okay, to describe this, I've described two different receptors in the serotonin system. Mm -hmm. The two most common serotonin receptors in the brain are the serotonin 1A and the serotonin 2A. And so the 1A is actually more relevant for SSRIs. And 
it's a simplification, but when you activate the YNA receptor, it reduces neural activity. I was so, actually reading something that was talking about that in the amygdala. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So like you, t- the more serotonin you have that activates the 1A receptor, it dampens activity. Mm-hmm. This is why you take an SSRI, you know, right. for example, and, and partially. So I- like to get back to the theory about that. So with the 1A, the idea is that it evolved in order to create a system to allow us to passively cope with stress. Mm. And so the idea is when you're in this really stressful um, life circumstance or experience, you know, serotonin levels actually go up. So serotonins rise in response to stress. As they rise, they'll first hit the serotonin 1A receptor. And what this receptor would do is dampen activity and kind of chill us out, reduce the stress, reduce the amygdala, fear response, whatever. We're just kind of calm, grounded, and relaxed and able to just withstand the kind of negative experience that you're in. Mm -hmm. Um, But the thing is, you're not, you know, you're not actively taking a role to try to relieve yourself of it. You're just, you know, coping with it. So Mm -hmm. it's just passive coping. So that's the 1A receptor. And the idea is that the 2A receptor only comes online when your stress gets extremely high, when you're mm. kind of, you know, you, you just broke, you got out of a five-year relationship and then you went to work, you got fired from work and then you had a flat tire on the way home. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you're like, just like max, maximum stress kind of thing. And then your serotonin levels get very high and then the 2A receptor gets activated. And what the 2A receptor might be for or it was proposed to be for is kind of mobilizing more in a, a kind of active dynamic response to the issue, basically meaning that it puts you in a state where now you're kind of like hyper aware and you're like, oh, I need to do anything, mm. anything it takes to get out of this. And like your mind is more flexible and like your assumptions and beliefs might be less strong. And you're kind of like anything goes, I'll do anything to get out of this. You know, I'm not constrained by my past in this moment. And, you know, I'm just going to do whatever it takes. Mm. And people, you, know, you could say people experience this as like the dark night of the soul mm-hmm. where they feel like, you know, the rug's being taken out of beneath them and they're, they've lost all structure in their life. And they're like, I don't even know who I am anymore or what's going on. You could say that this might be related, be related to the two-way receptor system being activated. It's kind of a way of reshuffling and reorganizing the system to change because that's what's really needed in that state. Okay. So I want to make sure I'm following. So the 1A receptor, 2A receptor, both serotonin. Mm-hmm. So then... Why does the 2A receptor just become active randomly in that uh, state of stress? Is it something, is there something like blocking that synapse otherwise until like higher levels of cortisol or something? Yeah, that's no, a good question. Serotonin has greater affinity for the 1A. So that means mm, the 1A is yeah. more sticky. And so the, so then, you know, when they're pretty low to medium levels, it's just going to 1A, it's not going to 2A yet. Mm. But once it, serotonin levels get higher and the 1A is kind of saturated, so it's going yeah. into 2A and then that comes online. Okay. Interesting. So drugs that might flood our system with an abundance of serotonin then are filling up all the 1A receptors. And now there's a ton left over that they can go to the less sticky 2A receptor. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, MDMA, for example, you know, you're getting a big boost of serotonin and it's activating these receptors, but not in response in response to stress. So it's a kind of way of hacking the system, right? Yeah, exactly. So then when you have that level, then you're more introspective interested in your thinking yeah Yeah, wanting to take action fascinating Mm -hmm. okay and uh why is this a theory and not yet (laughs) like we just don't know it's because the the literature the research is so like complex and there's you know uh the studies that that theory is based on also has a number of studies which like go in the opposite direction Uh, conflict 
So then you have to get into the really nitty gritty of how experiments were conducted. Was this reliable mm. research? Was it this? Was it that? Right. Serotonin literature is so massive and complex that it's hard to say, but. Interesting. But there's there any- a lot of work supporting it. Yeah. Are there any other main theories that are kind of in competition to it? Not in particular the, to the 2A receptor, but a mm-hmm. lot of, you know, understanding around the serotonin system is as a system that regulates stress. Mm-hmm. Um, because when your serotonin is depleted, you're more impulsive, you're more aggressive, you know, you're more prone to addiction type behavior. You're just kind of irritable and off center, basically. And so when you have higher serotonin, it's a way of kind of dealing with that, regulating that stress, allowing you to, to not be as aggressive or impulsive and allowing you to continue, you know? And so this model is taking that a step further. It's like when your mm-hmm. stress gets so intense that you can't just passively sit there anymore, it has to activate this whole new system in order to kind of flexibly and adaptively deal with what's going on. And the idea is that, again, psychedelics activate these receptors directly in the absence of any kind of stressor. Hmm. Because otherwise they're just sitting there kind of dormant. Yeah, I, I think the 2A only comes on like very in very extreme situations. So it wouldn't mm-hmm. happen in your regular day-to-day functioning. Yeah. But let's say, you know, um, yeah, you're going through a very, very tough time. And let's say you put your whole life into a relationship. And you're like who you were was that relationship. You got so enmeshed and intertwined. Then when you kind of got out of that and you're just on your own now, mm. and you're like, oh, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what's going on. And when you're in that place, you're kind of very, one, you're very vulnerable. And because you're just looking for something to grasp onto, you know, mm-hmm. and, and also, but at the same time, you're very flexible in what you can latch onto. Yeah, that's Like your true. brain, your mindset, your mindset hasn't crystallized into a particular model of yourself in the world yet. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you can choose so many different directions and you're so influenceable, just like when you're in a psychedelic experience, right? Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, people change so much after those big life Mm -hmm. things that are stressful and you take a whole new direction. That would make a lot of sense if that's our understanding of our brain, that we have these receptors that tap into this sort of behavior when we do get pushed to that level. And that could make a ton of sense. Um, It also could explain people when they talk about taking psychedelics, how it's a, they're going in searching for a kind of like a grounding, a rethinking of their life, a different perspective, which then, yeah, that could explain here's your two-way receptor pushing you into that space that's not in a true danger stress way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. totally totally so it basically that's the that's the thinking and you know what is referred to in the paper is that uh these states where you're able to kind of re-question everything again and kind of reshape your life in a way they refer to it as as a pivotal mental state mm. and it's pivotal because you can go either in a bad or good direction to put it simply because you're, you're very, very, again, vulnerable, sensitive to what's going on around you. You're kind of in this state of relative chaos and disorder. And it's natural, as a natural tendency as being a human, you want to collapse, grasp onto something for certainty. You know? Right. For example, if, you're, if you don't stop yourself, you could be straight into another relationship that's maybe abusive or whatever, but you want that certainty. Or it could be straight into this ideology or political mm-hmm. view that you just cling on to for your life now because it gives you your identity. Mm-hmm. And, and like so the idea is like a lot of these kind of like people clinging to something whether it's ideology relationship religion or or whatever it's a way of avoiding uncertainty uh, the uncertainty and chaos of not knowing right mm-hmm. and like psychedelics put you straight into that state and therefore when you're there you can have a bad trip you can be influenced very badly if you do it 
in the wrong circumstance. But if you do in the good one, you can use that flexibility to really make positive changes in your life. And that's kind of what they do in these studies for depression, for example. And they've seen great results. Yeah, it's really promising. Yeah. It's so fascinating. As you were speaking, I was just thinking about how science has always avoided really all these concepts of emotions, you know, like the hard science and research of just ignoring like, you know, desire and motivation, more of what we, you know, would call psychology. And now it's finally hitting this point where people are starting to think about it more and how drugs like this could really change our whole perspective of how we look at you know, our identity, our mental health, like just so much here is really just waiting to be tapped, I feel like. Totally. I think one of the big distinctions is that like a standard pharmaceutical drug, they work by altering the chemical balance in your brain. At least that's Mm -hmm. what people think they do. We really actually don't even know how they really work. But the idea is like you take this and you don't have to do anything yourself. It just magically works under the hood of your brain and you feel better. Whereas with psychedelics, it's like, it's no, it's not it, right? You have to take an active role in your process and um, actually do the work and go through this psychological experience that you could use to derive benefit, right? But again, only if you approach it with a sense of like surrender and courage that, you know, courage is required for that surrender and and, and kind of an ability to see what you need to see and work through what you need to work through. And that makes it very different than standard drugs because you can't just give it to somebody and put them in a room by themselves and like, yeah, you'll get better after, right? Yeah, no. That's kind of what they tried in some, in the sixties, for example, with some studies they are like, yeah, if this, if the drug works, then we can eliminate all other factors, strap them to a chair, give them 300 micrograms of LSD and they'll get better. Mm. And literally they did this and obviously, you know, they didn't get better. But it makes sense. They want to do it because then you have a control group, you know, something truly we can show that it's just the med and then, yeah, that's not going to be possible. Locking someone with a ton of acid in a room by themselves with no other stimulus is terrifying. Yeah. And it's a huge tension these days too, because the whole idea of showing a drug's efficacy is showing mm. that is removing all extraneous factors, just the drug and right. is it exactly. better than placebo? Exactly. But you can't do that with psychedelics because the placebo and the expect- expectancy in the set are like essential, you know, parts of it. So and it's, wow. a, it's a yeah. real problem. It's discussed a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you couldn't give someone a sugar pill. They'd know they got the placebo. Like, yeah. How do you even begin to create a placebo group for this sort of thing? Yeah. And the thing is studies do it. They just put them in a, they do placebo and psychedelic, but like everybody knows. Everyone you know, knows. Yeah. Like if you're getting, you know, the equivalent of four grams of mushrooms versus placebo, there's no guessing involved whether you got it or not. Right. Exactly. Like, Cause so. you would know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well then let's talk about that too. There, I'm sure there's a lot of people who might be listening who have never had psychedelics. Yeah. What is the actual experience like physiologically? What do people typically feel? Could you talk about those sorts of things as yeah, well? For sure. So I could speak, let's talk about, I guess, psilocybin. Psilocybin and LSD are very similar, but psilocybin mm-hmm. is shorter. So psilocybin is, is usually anywhere from, let's say six to eight at the longer end, hours long. Mm-hmm. So you get like a set of physiological effects and then like subjective psychological, like physiological, it's like more like at the beginning, you may feel a bit of transient anxiety, kind of tension in your body, your palms might be sweaty, uh, depending on how you took it. If you ate them as mushrooms, you might have some kind of nausea and like, mm-hmm. you know, a bit of a stomach ache. And but like overall studies have actually shown that increases to blood pressure and and other basically physiological responses are very minimal. They're not mm-hmm. significantly increased, you know, if you do it in a controlled setting. And then subjectively, there's kind of a time course of effects. So it's like 
you have the come up and then you peak and then you slowly come down very simplistically. Mm -hmm. In terms of the effects, you can separate it perhaps into, if you want, if you want to be kind of scientific about it, into four different components. So mm -hmm. it changes your thinking, your perception, your emotions, and your sense of self. Perception, you know, visually, you might see patterns in things. Things might blur together a bit. It really mm -hmm. depends how much you took. Colors might be a bit more vivid. In terms of sounds, you might be able to parse the different various sounds in your environment and see mm -hmm. the depth and layers of the sounds. Um, your sense of touch might be enhanced as well mm -hmm. and smell, taste, anything. So basically you, your senses are kind of amplified and blown wide open um, and you're able to, you increase the amount of sensory information you could take in. And then thinking, various things can happen to your thinking, of course, but we could say it's consistent with like kind of thinking becomes more unconstrained. It's not as, it might not be as logical and linear as usual. It kind of hops from here to here. You see crazy, bizarre connections between things that don't really make sense. But for some reason, you see the, you see the connection between them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it allows you to kind of break free out of the need to be reasonable and logical and rational. You can mm -hmm. just kind of have this dreamlike state of thinking where like you're just hopping all over the place and it's kind of bizarre. Mm -hmm. And then emotion, you can be very emotionally sensitive to things. Your empathy can be increased. Um, your, your emotion can kind of switch from extreme positives to extreme negatives to this to that you know very easily especially at higher doses so there's kind of this emotional volatility and but on the other side like you know you can experience the most blissful joyous feelings of your life and really appreciate music more than you ever had and have it like mm -hmm. you know have burst into tears on how beautiful yeah. a piece of music is or a flower or whatever right um, but you can also go into very fear and mm. panic anxiety states too if mm -hmm. you're not responsible and so that was, that was perception, thinking, and emotion. And then sense of self is an interesting one because it could change your sense of who you are or mm -hmm. what you are. So like on the bodily level, your sense of being a distinct body that's limited to this skin and this distinct from the couch you're sitting on and, and everything else can be kind of blurred and you just don't know where you end and the couch begins, right? Mm -hmm. And you just kind of merge with what's around you or other people. If you took a good amount and you're kind of at the peak, you can lose sense of being an individual person that has a past mm -hmm. and future. And that's like the, the, you know, the very intense ego dissolution state where you just fully kind of intertwined and merged with everything. And there's no sense of identity there. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like you got launched into this deep yogic meditation, uh, unitive oneness state, um, you know, without you doing anything. But, right. Yeah. Which is super powerful considering human nature, which is just often very static in how our brain does things and people get into these patterns and habituations of how they live their life. And here's something mm -hmm. that's so incredibly powerful that you have a one-time experience that could really do all of this in just one setting, you know, one moment, which is just absolutely insane. And there's so much here. I feel like one of the favorite questions that I've heard from people is, uh, do you see leprechauns? Do you see little people running when you do yeah. these drugs? Is it like, you know, how they show it on TV? Right. And, and no, honestly, if you take, <laughs> if you take, it's not. So like for one, like people call them hallucinogens, right? Mm -hmm. so that's such like an inaccurate term. Cause one, as I've just described, it goes far beyond that. And then two, to have a full straight up hallucination of something that's not there at all mm -hmm. is extremely rare unless you took like, you know, four times, five times as much as you should have taken, um, then maybe you'll have experiences like that. Um, mm -hmm. To say that hallucinations of things that are not 
there at all is a common aspect of the psychedelic experience. It's just not true. At But all. Everyone thinks that. Yeah, because it's media, right? And well, what's funny is it originates perhaps in the 60s, mm. where one, you know, the government was trying to scare everyone from using it. But two, people yeah. took crazy doses back then. Really? What were they taking? Do you know? Like standard tabs were like pure 250 to 300 microgram tabs. So that was a standard dose. In contrast, you know, the majority of studies use 100 micrograms, maybe 200. And I guess most people tripping, I guess, uh, kind of a standard person tripping will take 200 max. Mm. But they were taking upwards of 300 or maybe even two tabs of that much of like Whoa. 500. Or, so that's when you're, you're really activating the system like crazy. And that's when the fundamental structures of your reality can start to cave because you're, mm -hmm. you're really in this state where anything goes. And, you know, you can enter states where it's like you're in a waking dream, for example. Mm. And there's like an intertwinement between your imagination and reality. And you're blurring all distinctions because you're just totally blasted. Certainly. Yeah. And it's, it's utterly fascinating to me that this psychedelics LSD, they were not illegal until what was it in the seventies? Yeah. Like late sixties. Yeah. Like, I mean, we were doing research with this stuff and actually able to do it. And then just all of a sudden got shut down completely and put in a schedule one drug, which means it has no medicinal value at all. So, and that most addictive Uh, so I don't know if you have any comments on how addictive right, psychedelics yeah. are. So, so they're not, you can't be exactly. completely dependent on, right? There's no addictive nut forms. Like, and if you have a full-blown psychedelic experience, like you're not really going to want to do it the next day. Mm -hmm. if you're a normal person. And it's not something that lends itself to like wanting to do all the time. And actually, if you give it to rats and try to get them to, like, if you give them cocaine, they're going to keep administering over and over and over and over again. You give them the psychedelics, right. it's actually aversive. They'll like stay the hell away from it after a while. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, so I think <laughs> they don't they don't enjoy tripping. <laughs> wow. But, yeah. I mean, makes sense. They're just head twitching all day. Like I wouldn't want to do that either, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, from a pure science standpoint, it shows that it's not addictive. So it's I I don't understand how it's still in that category. Uh, I think a lot of people probably have that question and it's politics right yeah, is the I, answer yeah i think it will change uh soon with the more and more and more studies coming out and, it, and if psilocybin is to be made a kind of available medicine for psychiatrists mm -hmm. it, you know it has to change the scheduling has to change at some point yeah. right there's a whole group of people that are or i guess everybody jesus a lot of people are still very afraid of psychedelics mm-hmm And I think that a lot of that was connected to the 70s and that whole movement of criminalization of this drug and all of that. And now here we are, people are afraid to take it because they think they're going to see a leprechaun. And there's just been this hype and this whole, like, I don't even know story to really what psychedelics are, I feel like. Yeah, totally. And some of it is kind of warranted of in terms of using it irresponsibly. Could put yeah. you in crazy experiences, right? And yes. And I feel like a lot of the research these days actually downplays the risk for people doing it at home um, because a lot of the research is done in such a controlled context. You have two therapists mm -hmm. next to you holding your hand. You're in this nice room, you know, there's medical professionals around you. And so you're really able to go deep into it. Whereas if somebody's just taking it at home and let's say they live in a kind of sketchier neighborhood or something and they go for a walk, that's a recipe for disaster or mm -hmm. the people around them are going to like mess with them or they don't really trust who's, who's around them. They feel judged. And that could put you in a very, you know, not a fun headspace. But at the same time, you know, 
it's not like you you take it and you're instantly you're psychotic and you're gonna be tied up somewhere right that's definitely not true and it yeah. really depends on the context and you know the set and setting as they call it but for sure I feel like most people say that they're just afraid that they're gonna not be able to control themselves mm-hmm. is what I hear a lot yes and I mean, this is why you should do it in a controlled setting, you know? Right, right. And I I mean, you said surrender too at the beginning. You were talking about that. And I think that's a big thing with drugs that can affect your mental state so much. There is a level of, you know, you don't have the same control that you did before. It's just, it's a different mental state. So there is a lot of surrender to that change that has to happen. And if you try to hold on to your previous mental state, you're really going to panic because it's, you're not in that one right now. You know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. You have to go through the door. You can't be holding onto the sides exactly. of the door, like trying to not get in there. Right. Right. But how do you explain that to people who have never done it? How do you, you know, tell them like you let go, <laughs> just fall into it, you know, and trust it. Yeah. And it's going to be a time and it will end. That's what they do in the trials for people who've never taken a psychedelic. Let's say, oh, you know, there's trials yeah. for people who have, who have a terminal cancer diagnosis, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to, they're going to die soon. And they're kind of having, they're struggling with it. And these are people sometimes in their 50s or 60s, never taken a psychedelic. Now they're taking a high dose psilocybin session, wow. you know, and um, that's what they tell them. They're like, if, you know, this can be a very intense experience, uh, surrender to it. I, I think they even say in the instructions, if there is a door, open it. If there's anything mm. available, go deeper, deeper, deeper and keep following it. And they, they recommend them to do that. And so I think, you know, surrendering in that way is essential and it's something they specifically tell them. But again, you know, this is them lying on a couch with eye shades on, listening to music with therapists around them. If you're in uh, a big music festival that's crazy and you just right. take way too much acid, then you surrender. Who knows where you're going to end up at that point, right? This is why right. it's so dangerous. Certainly. And, and the loss of control, like, is really dose dependent, right? It mm. depends on how much you took. If you take a smaller amount you're still very cognizant and present. But like, as you get into really higher amounts, it can be like a, a threshold you hit, mm-hmm. where then your just sense of self-awareness is gone. And you're just kind of in this experience until it's over. Right. Um, and that's the scary part, right? Definitely. And I think it's interesting that some of those same people will say, I'm afraid to do psychedelics, because I'm going to lose control. But then they'll also drink, to which I say, hey, that you're going to lose even more control, in my opinion. Uh, potentially, if you do that, and it's the same sort of concept, right? Of like, if you go past a certain limit, mm-hmm. this yeah. is what's going to happen, regardless. In a lot of different drugs, and I think people forget that alcohol is a drug. Totally, it is. I mean, just like psychedelics, it acts on particular receptors in your brain, yes. acts on the GABA receptors, yes. and, and once it's in your brain, it's no different, right? Exactly. Yeah. Chemical. Exactly. Right. But people, I don't, I don't know if it's because society has just allowed alcohol to be one of those psychotropic substances that we have that we just allow with no stigma, but people forget it's the same level and it should, in in my personal opinion, be treated the same of understand that they're both things that will affect your brain in different ways. Like we shouldn't necessarily stigmatize one or the other. They have benefits, sure. dangers, be responsible. Yeah, yeah, totally. But I think psychedelics, yeah, it's interesting because if you drink too much alcohol, it'll just dull you out. Mm. Or psychedelics will the opposite. You're just in some yeah. crazy, crazy experience. And but also psychedelics, what kind of makes them perhaps have potential to make a longer impact is yes. again, they make the brain more plastic, right? Mm. These neuroplasticity so that if you have a very traumatic experience on a psychedelic and it's not resolved during the experience, you will feel that afterwards. You'll kind of be a bit down for a little while. And this has been documented in the mm. 60s and 70s. 
psychiatrist Dan Groft, who's like a very well-known pioneer, kind of led over the numbers, they say like four or 5,000 sessions of LSD psychotherapy from the 60s to the mid 70s. Mm-hmm. It kind of really detailed people's experiences. And he was like, if somebody's in a bad trip space, they have to find that resolution. Otherwise it lasts during their day. And he would guide a given person through, you know, 10, 20 different sessions and like see how the content that emerges develops. And you're kind of on this journey through from session to session, Mm. take one. And then the next time, even if it's a month later, it kind of picks up where you left off, Mm. work through it. But if you just like kind of get overwhelmed by this kind of traumatic experience from your childhood coming up while you're at a music festival, you go into a trauma response and then they give you some kind of tranquilizer and get you out of it. You're going to be, that's going to mess you up because Mm. like, you didn't find the resolution to that experience and now you've brought it up and wow. it can actually activate that trauma. And so, that's a real thing too. So, so what do people do? Do drugs again? Like how do you get out of that loop? What do people do once those neural pathways have been open? Do they just fall right. away after some time because of the plasticity or? They, I mean, it really depends, right? So mm-hmm. like perhaps, you know, it's very possible that after a while this fades away just like you can have a very positive experience and it'll fade away if you don't integrate it, right? right. But, but if you go into that negative space and then it's kind of reinforced really strongly, mm. and people then, you know, you go to a psychiatrist, you're like, oh, like you have bipolar disorder now and you create that narrative that that's who you are. And then, you know, you can see how that can spiral into an identity right. when it wasn't really the case. Um, right. Maybe they'll push you on meds because they think you're crazy now. And mm. then you're just like messed up because the meds, right? Right which is, you know, antipsychotics are not fun. They really, you know, harm a person's ability to think clearly. Their sexual function will gain weight. Uh, you won't be able to feel anything. Antipsychotics or are all antidepressants is what you're saying? I mean, they all vary in the degree to which they have side effects, but I think antipsychotics are, a lot of them are particularly kind of nasty in that respect. Certainly, yeah, they have a, a larger effect, but then what do you do if that's the only thing that keeps you functioning, Right. Yeah, but the concern is like prematurely prescribing that. Oh, you know? certainly. Yeah, prematurely incorrect diagnosis. All of this is super big, right? If, you know, and, and what you said earlier of labeling, if someone gets a diagnosis that isn't correct, that can create a whole sort of cohesive narrative. And as humans, that's what we like to do. We like to make cohesive narratives out of our life. This is, oh, I have this diagnosis. This is why this happened, which is sometimes true. But if, you know, it wasn't accurate, then it can create a whole different narrative, which can then perpetuate further actions and further understanding of your life and kind of go down a path. But yeah, I guess, yeah, it's just, I I would wonder those people who have that psychedelic trip that it goes poorly and then are afraid to get on the horse again, right? To do it again. And and then now it's this whole, oh, psychedelics are really scary. Psychedelics are this. I had a bad trip. I can't ever do it again. But then, yeah, they just kind of wait for that pass i guess yeah yeah and i know people who've gone through that exact experience right and, and yeah. they kind of had a very dark experience and now they can't even go near it because they feel that yeah. feel coming back right mm. but like the way to resolve that is to go with the therapist but obviously you can't do this you know it's illegal the way to do it in an ideal sense would be to see a psychiatrist or or a mental health practitioner who's trained in psychedelic therapy mm. it's like hey i had this negative experience in the past i know it's going to come up but I want you to help me resolve it. And I think that could be profoundly healing for somebody to go right. through. But it's a very delicate process and it takes a lot of courage to go back into your bad trip to try to resolve it because you really need the support if you want to do that. Certainly. So what do you think a bad trip is then? 
I think it takes a variety of forms, right? Uh, there's actually a questionnaire that scientists administer called the Challenging Experiences Questionnaire. Ooh, I like which that. Is, which is meant to kind of index bad trip phenomena. And, I like and challenge. It's so much healthier. Let's use challenging experience. Exactly. It's positive. Exactly, because exactly. it could, it can be negative. It can be good. Like if you say it's a bad trip, that's kind of you know has a, obviously it's going to be right. bad, you know. And, and so the Challenging Experience Questionnaire it has seven components. You can try to remember them. One is a feeling of dread, mm. a feeling of panic, feeling of insanity. Oh, I'm not going to remember the other ones. Anyway, it's like a whole, like the, the characteristic aspects of a bad trip experience. And, and actually, mm-hmm. you know, there are some people who have high kind of challenging experiences and still, you know, get a positive benefit, mm-hmm. but it is negatively correlated with positive benefits. So people mm. who have an extremely challenging experience have less positive benefits from it. Yeah. However, I would, I would also add to that though, I think, you know, that's a very crude way of saying it because a challenging experience can vary widely. Like, you know, you can have a lot of fear, dread, and feel like you're going crazy because mm-hmm. a traumatic experience of you being abused as a kid came up. Right. Or you're just with some sketchy people who freaked you out, right? Yeah. And like in the terms of the trauma part, it's like if you have that come up, but then you work through it and now you got to the other side and you, figure, you know, you somehow made peace and integrated into your psyche. Mm-hmm. then you're likely not going to have negative effects after. But if you're in some sketchy environment and people freak you out and you come out of that, it's like, that's going to mess you up a bit. And there was no, you know, resolution in the short term for that. You know? Certainly. Right. And I mean, I feel like psychedelics seem to illuminate thought patterns. And so if you already have a negative thought pattern that you habitually fall into, then you take a psychedelic and that can become very apparent and happen very fast. And if you can't get yourself out of that negative spiral, say it's anxiety of getting worried of, oh, do these people like me that I'm with? And like, if that happens on a normal day to day, then you pump your body with this, you know, drug and now it's going to really show up. And if you can't ground in normal time, grounding when you're on a psychedelic becomes even harder. But if you are able to kind of recognize that in social settings and ground yourself appropriately, then it's really taking those skills. I feel like into that experience of recognizing this is a different mental state. Mm-hmm. We're going to, you know, ground ourselves in a different way and calm and then move and redirect our thoughts. A lot of it, I feel like it's my, this sense of mindfulness. Exactly. I, I think, yeah, I guess that's under acknowledged is just how important mindfulness is in psychedelic and that yeah. being a psychedelic experience. Because, uh, you know, at any point in any experience in your life, you can always just take the stance of a witness of just watching what's happening. Mm-hmm. You might be in the craziest, you know, psychedelic experience, but if you realize I am not this experience, I'm watching this experience. Right. And like, and at, at another level, all of this is being created within myself. It's, you know, it's all me. And then you're able to take that stance and that kind of, you're like, oh, this is bizarre what is all this negative crazy shit being in my mind for you know Mm -hmm. as opposed to oh this is so real this is happening to me and so I do think mindfulness is essential from distancing yourself from your experience to give yourself a greater uh, control over it certainly I mean just listening to you talk about it it sounds almost identical right thinking about it in that way of you know you're moving through your day with mindfulness you take a step back and kind of recognize how your emotions get pulled and you can Mm -hmm. see your emotions and you don't ignore them right you see them but you recognize that they are not defining of you. They are a part of you. They are this outside thing that I'm looking at from a little bit of distance and I can choose whether I want to engage with that or not. And in the same, it's exactly what you're talking about with uh, psychedelics of choosing whether to focus down that thought pattern or redirect and refocus. I wonder if, are there, is there research talking about people who are active 
typically mindful and show really high correlations of that with potentially having good trips? Hmm. I don't think so. Uh, yeah, there are measures out there where you can give them a questionnaire. There's like the five factor mindfulness scale. Exactly. I wrote a whole, yeah, that's yeah. just me. I actually wrote a paper on that very recently for a class. Yeah. Yes, nice, nice. so I know exactly that's, what you're talking about. Totally, so that exists. And I, but I don't think it's been administered in the context of a psychedelic study. That'd mm. be interesting. Yeah, maybe the next time I, you know, when I collect some data with people on Seriously. psychedelics, I'll get it. Yeah, um, do that. Because cool. I think- that'd be fascinating. Is it really just that? I mean, and don't they put people who do meditate into fMRIs and other scanners and notice that like the areas of the brain that are active are different. And I don't want to say the same areas that light up for hallucinogenics or is it close or anything? There there is some overlap. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we should say that meditation and mindfulness are so, you know, complex. There's so many different oh, yeah, types, yeah. et cetera. Certainly. But there has been, there was one study that got a lot of press and people refer to it a lot. They had reduced activity in their default mode network, um, mm. meditators. Yeah, so default mode network is involved in so many things, but it is involved in kind of our mind wandering and daydreaming and, and rumination, mm-hmm. this kind of stuff, remembering the past, thinking about the future. And so it makes sense that meditators would re- reduce activity in this area. But what's interesting is that with psychedelics, you also get reduction in this area, but that can happen at the same time of a crazy psychedelic experience, right? So, so this points to the limitations of the same default mode network deactivation. That's a whole topic, but there is overlap in these default mode network regions in some way, uh, mm-hmm. which is interesting. And there was one study actually where they had people on a Vipassana meditation retreat. Mm-hmm. It was a seven day. And on the fourth day, they gave half the people psilocybin mm-hmm. and half them a placebo. And they found that the people who took the psilocybin, as you might guess, had much more uh, kind of spiritual, mystical experiences and more ego dissolution. They were able to tap into deeper states of meditation that they weren't mm-hmm. able to before. And even when they measured these people, I think it was either four or six weeks later, the people who got to psilocybin and had deeper mystical experiences had greater increases in well-being like a month later, six weeks later. And this is insane. And the rates of that are higher than frequent drug treatments that we have. Yeah, yeah. That's nuts. I'm listening to us speak and thinking some people still won't have even gotten past the point of stigma to even hear what we're saying at all, which right. just breaks my heart that you know, you try to talk to people about this and they just drug bad, drug bad. And it's like, yeah. there's, there really is no discussion of these deeper points of just, wow, what power we have potentially with this substance to just change human existence and our connection to our mental health and others. And just, it's so much uh, that I just get very upset. Yeah. I think, I think partially, it, I mean, there's so many things, but I think partially it's because in order to like, you know, understand or think about psychedelics, you can't be black or white. It's very gray mm. in that, you know, it's not like they're good or bad or they're, they're positive or negative. It's they're, they are what you make of them. They could be all these things. They could put right. you in the darkest experience of your life. They can also put you in these blissful, mystical experiences and facilitate behavior change and, you know, help treat depression and all these things. I think you have to, have to really think about them deeply Otherwise, you either become super, you know, exuberant about them, evangelist about them, mm-hmm. or you're like, oh, they're bad drugs that make you crazy. Right. In order to be in that middle ground, which is the most reasonable ground, um, you actually have to do some thinking. Certainly. I think people like to avoid doing some thinking. Right. And I think it's important to contextualize the other drugs that we have. And uh, because this is also kind of a 
not kind of, this is also a very Western phenomenon. Not other places in the world do incorporate psychedelics and drugs in a very different context. So this is talking about American culture, right? And then we look at American culture and we have really normalized other drugs. I know we talked about alcohol, but equally another drug that affects people's mental state, coffee. We mm-hmm. just find that super fine. You can take coffee all day long, get super anxious or agitated or energetic and have all this energy from a drug. And that's perfectly fine. You can even have a dependence on it. And that's celebrated as your morning cup of coffee. And I, I drink coffee every day. I love coffee, mm-hmm. but it's just interesting to me that then like, there's this almost imaginary symbolic box of drugs that are not okay. You know, like yeah we really don't talk about coffee as a drug. We talk about it as a drink. And then, but there's these class of drugs, which include frequently the big ones, right? LSD, ecstasy, blah, 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 whatever. Those are the drugs that are bad. And then it almost, yeah, it becomes this just blanket box of, we're not going to talk about those ones. Those are the ones we don't do anything with. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate. And it is very cultural, right? And like, yeah. um, especially if you grew up as a kid telling them, telling you in elementary when you're a little kid, like, oh, these are bad drugs. Oh, and, yeah. and people just, you know, navigate their lives without questioning it. And now, you know, they're in their 30s and they believe their entire life it's a bad drug. And now people yep. are saying, oh, they're using it in therapy. Like, what the hell is that, what is that about, right? Exactly. Um, and we're seeing a little bit of that with cannabis. I mean, cannabis is now coming into this space where people are learning that, wow, there was maybe some good properties here that we just totally ignored. And we're going to have to redefine our stance and perspective on these things. Yeah. I really do think it's happening with psychedelics. Yeah, too, I do so. too. Yeah. Especially with Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. I'm not sure if oh, you I haven't heard that. of it. Yeah. Tell me about it. Really? So it's like a really, you know, it's introduced a lot of people to psychedelics. So Michael Pollan's this nonfiction author. Mm-hmm. He's written about plants and nutrition. Very respected guy. He like, you know, I think he, he's lectured at Harvard and Berkeley and this kind of thing. And um, he got into psychedelics because he was fascinated by, you know, basically what we're talking about. Like, oh, he's, he heard about it when he was younger. He's been around it, but he never really knew about it. Now there's this revolution happening in research. Uh, the book is kind of both the sociocultural analysis of psychedelics before and now. And now, and he also, he went and tried different psychedelic drugs mm-hmm. and talks about his experiences uh, in a very critical, skeptical, you know, very level-headed way. Mm-hmm. He interviews and interacts with a bunch of leading researchers. It's like a really wow. good book. And I think that really puts psychedelics on the mainstream map because a lot of people respect him. He's not like some guy who came in just for psychedelics, right? Mm-hmm. He had long history of really good work outside of the field. And, and like putting that book out there, I think has changed a lot of people's minds. It's funny. It's called How to Change Your Mind. But yeah, and he's doing it. a lot of people's minds with it. So I think that's made a big change. And of course, there's a psychedelic business industry, business industry um, these days with like hundreds of millions of dollars being poured into it and it's growing so rapidly. Just the fact that I think, you know, two of these companies have over a hundred billion dollar market cap, even though they're pre-revenue, they're not even making money yet because obviously they're not legal, but that VCs and all these rich bankers are pouring hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, means times are changing, right? All right. Do you have stock advice? What are the stocks? (laughs) Where are we going to start putting our money? (laughs) Right. There's a lot of resources on that online. So certainly. Yeah. I mean, it's changing. That's why I wanted to have you on the show. That's why I want to open up dialogues about this because I think there's still just such a lack of real conversation about what these experiences are and doing it in a professional and not, you know, I don't like not a drug lore way of just, Oh, play drugs. And, but like really talking about the good, the bad, the dangers and the benefits of it. I think that's a very healthy conversation way to look at it. Mm -hmm. You also, you know, you're in an academic field too. 
Mm-hmm. And it seems potentially like, you know, science has been doing this since the 50s, 60s. So maybe there's less of a stigma there in your field, or do you feel like there's still a stigma to be studying and talking about these things? There is somewhat. Like uh, I work in the Montreal Neurological Institute, which is a very, mm-hmm. it's like the big, biggest neuroscience institute in Canada and one of the biggest in North America. And it's a bit more like mainstream conservative, you could say. And I think most people are open and curious but also regarded as fringe to some degree. Mm. It's unfortunate because some researchers will say stuff like, like, oh, it's like, it's so complex. How can you control for all the factors? So, you know, subjective the experiences and say like, oh, then they're not really, you know, uh, valid objects of scientific study. But mm-hmm. then it's like, these things are fascinating. And the fact that they're kind of escaping typical methodologies means you just have to be more creative and find ways to study them, not kind of not even look at them because right. they challenge our paradigms. Yeah. Don't be intimidated by the challenge. Let's rise up to it. Let's find it. Let's find that study that, you know, that could do this. Yeah, exactly. And, and but like a lot of it is reputation because reputation is like mm. academia is so political, right? And right. reputation matters. So if you're labeled, um, especially as an early researcher as fringe and people just assume you're like a bad scientist or you're weird or you're unbiased or something and that can really you know impact your ability to get a job to get things so do you get any negative feedback when you reach out to people and tell them what you do do people do you feel judged no 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 so for me it's all positive there is some kind of hesitance sometimes Mm -hmm. even with my research supervisor uh, because he's totally non-psychedelic and I just kind of bring psychedelics into the lab yeah Um, and he's kind of become more open to it but um, he's very hesitant, again, because reputation management, right? Mm. But I think times are changing and any reasonable person, especially a scientist, if you show them, it's like, hey, read this review paper, look at these research papers, you're going to be like, hmm, oh, there's something here. Yeah. And, um, and recently, you know, there was a study comparing psilocybin to escitalopram, which is a standard SSRI. Right. That was in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is like the most high impact medical journal in the world. Mm. It's like science. It's like better than nature, but for medicine kind of thing. Were it to be in that a highly esteemed uh, journal, Things like means it can be read by yeah. by doctors all around the world and taken seriously, right? So I think that's huge as well. Right, definitely. Mm-hmm. How do we support the work? How do we, you know, I like to include pieces of activism on my show for people that do find some of these topics something that they want to support in their lives some way? Are there any resources or avenues that you would say people could get involved? Yeah. Hmm. I know there are a lot of survey studies that researchers do online. If you try to psychedelic, sometimes not even if you did try it, just collecting different data on people to get a sense of just like the population level use tendencies or whatever. Definitely looking into that. In terms of specific resources, mm-hmm. uh, you can look into John Hopkins University and in Imperial College London. If you just like go on their websites and find the Psychedelic Research Center website, there will definitely be links to, to take part in different research studies, which you can just do from home. Yeah. So that's one way. Another way is like the main impediment to psychedelic research these days is not approval from regulator, regulatory, not, not getting regulatory approval or ethics. Mm-hmm. It's actually funding. Mm. So like government agencies will approve psychedelic research, but they're not yet really funding it. Hmm. Psychedelic studies are expensive because you got to buy these drugs. You have to have psychiatrists on board who's there, you know, two psychiatrists for eight hours for one person. A lot of the time, you know, adds up. And so a lot of studies are either funded by philanthropy, like big rich people like Tim Ferriss or whatever, donating millions of dollars. Or like, you know, the first 
brain imaging study on LSD was crowdfunded because mm. there's no other way to get funding. So basically the thought there is like, if you're rich, know somebody who's rich, get them, educate them about psychedelics, uh, donate to a, you know, something like MAPS yeah. or USONA, these nonprofits. MAPS. So what recommendations would you have for someone who is open and curious to a lot of the stuff that we talked about today? Right. So I wouldn't advocate for doing illegal drugs, but there are places in the world where it is legal. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Netherlands, for example, there's places like the Synthesis Institute where you can go on a treat and take some mushroom truffles. What? Um, yeah, there's, there's like fully legal retreat centers in the Netherlands to do it. And Synthesis is the main one. And I believe Oregon passed a bill to decriminalize uh, psychedelics, not, not, not even decriminalize, allow them to be used in a therapeutic setting. Mm-hmm. It's not active yet, but I think it's something in the next year or two, they'll have centers where people can go, I believe, without a disorder of some sort and get and have a psychedelic trip. Mm-hmm. Might be a bit expensive, but that's available. Also, Jamaica, psilocybin mushrooms are legal in Jamaica. And really? there are retreat centers out there. Yeah. Wow. So you can go down there and... Uh, I'm not sure the status of ayahuasca. I'm sure some South American countries, if you do it in a religious context, it's not against the law. Mm-hmm. This must be the case in Brazil or Peru because there's a lot of retreat centers down there. Mm-hmm. But there, there are places if you're resourceful and willing to travel a bit and make that, you know, go on a physical journey in addition to the psychological journey. I think there Definitely. are ways to do it. There's a lot people could learn by taking those trips and going out and, you know, expanding their consciousness and getting out of our... I mean, you're in Canada, but this little Western American bubble that we have and just learning about different experiences, different relations to drugs. There's so many different cultural pieces here that you can unlock by going to a different location and learning more about yourself and how other people relate to the drug. Mm, totally. And, yeah. and it's totally worth it, you know, but at the same time, be very careful where you're going. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of places, especially, you know, in foreign countries, they're just trying to scam these Westerners who want to, you know, have an authentic shamanic experience and they just pretend the whole way and then, you know, steal their money or worse. Right. Right. So like definitely there are a lot of websites which catalog retreat centers internationally mm. and with ratings and reviews and make sure you know where you're going, where you're getting yourself into and, and always maintain kind of, I know, a skeptical eye and, and kind of don't be too naive around it. Certainly. And one of the last things I always like to ask everyone on the show is one thing that they would like to normalize and it could be anything. It could, I like to present it as, you know, something personal to you that is important that you wish other humans just knew was more of a normal experience. Hmm. Basically normalize people's innate ability to work through their issues themselves, kind of empowering people to have mm-hmm. the ability to take a, take an active role in their mental health. That's what it comes down to. Instead of needing to outsource it to drugs or even therapists, it's just like, you know, ha- you know, starting a meditation practice, journaling, analyzing your patterns, introspecting, creating some kind of internal practice with yourself, taking an active process in how you're doing instead of outsourcing it. Certainly. And I think, you know, from my perspective, even the outsourcing should be done in combo, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like if you are seeing a therapist or doing those things, also incorporating this individual aspect of internal work, and that is the work, right? But I think what you're yeah. talking to about is very powerful in the sense of, I think if I'm understanding correctly, what you're trying to hit is the autonomy piece. 
of this is that we can take a active role in changing our mental state. It's not just something of talking to someone and that talking will necessarily project change. It's taking active steps of reflecting, learning, and using your autonomy with your own mental state to bring about change. Exactly. No, that's exactly it. Basically taking upon yourself to analyze and understand yourself. Yeah. And really just go inside and like, what are my tendencies in behaving and acting and thinking? You know, where do they come from? Am I happy with them? Am I Mm -hmm. I in integrity with my values? Right. Why not if I'm not? And how can I change that? And where does it come from? You know, there's so many questions you can ask yourself and make big progress in just living a more conscious, aware, integrated, harmonious, happy, you know, life. And, and yeah, and, and you made a good point that it, it shouldn't, it can happen. It could very well complement therapy and other things mm-hmm. you're doing, but it's like not making that the only thing where you're dependent on something external. Certainly. And, you know, there's a lot of people who can't afford therapy. And so then if I'd want to say we should all be doing that, that is all what we should be doing. We should all be looking introspective and thinking about how can we better, where can we grow? What are areas we want to change? Is this cohesive with my values? And then if you have therapy, there's that person that you can talk about it with. So like, yeah, everyone, I want everyone to do this, you know, whether you have therapy or not, what is this? This is a level of connecting to yourself, your yeah listening to your inner value system and living out that life and really taking active steps i mean that would be the magical formula to all of a good life right yeah i mean to me it's crazy that a lot of people don't automatically do that you know Mm. Um, this is kind of why i wanted to bring it up because it's not it should in my mind be an essential part of any education of any child for example to instill (laughs) these values and practices and techniques but we don't have that. It's like, oh, I feel bad. I need to go to the doctor or I need to take this drug or I need to go somewhere else and find out, need somebody else to help me. And I feel like that's a baseline way a lot of people operate and never taking the time to sit with themselves and analyze in an introspective way. Okay. So how did you get to this space then? How, what do you think made you the person that is so introspective? Was it an experience? Was this something you always did? I think partially it's personality. Like, mm. uh, I think some people are more predisposed to be like that than not. And like, I, you know, in my late teens and stuff, I was a big reader. So I would read a lot on Eastern philosophy and spirituality and meditation and this kind of stuff. And it's really a lot of, and self-help, self-development, this whole, whole thing. Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of showed me kind of how, how we perceive ourselves and reality creates our reality in that we can change that and we can change that through meditating, through mm-hmm. um, working through our issues, becoming, being honest and real with ourselves and, you know, all these things. And just seeing how in myself, uh, how I've transformed over the last uh, eight, you know, 10 years or whatever, and just seeing what's possible there. And then seeing people who are still the way they were when they were 18 and not really, mm-hmm. and just running from their issues and hiding them, you know, in whatever way they can, uh, just because on one side, they don't know how to deal with it. And, and it's, it's just not taught. And, and people aren't told that they can, and that it's possible and that they're, you know, yeah, that they're just able to do it. And I right. think that's a large portion. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because I, I, I could probably talk about that forever. Because ultimately, that's just the concept of people get stuck in these habits thinking they are, I feel like who they are, and they are. And it's almost like this concept that we're solidified and that we can't change. And I, I feel like I see a lot of that of just feeling like you're stuck living this pattern that has become who you are and learning that, wait, I can change that pattern now. And literally in this exact moment, I have the ability to do that, which sounds mm-hmm 
very hippie woo woo. I feel like a spiritual coach person to come out and be like, you can do change now, but like, damn it. That's the message. Like, right. Like you have the power and it's like, ah, I want, I want people to see that. And you know, that's a million dollar question. How do we help other people see that power? Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that psychedelics can do is, or just by, by reading about psychedelics and how they can help people change tells people that it's possible. Right. Mm. Cause there's so many people, even in there, like I'm 27 and let's say I, I've seen people 27, 28, you know, kind of acting like, oh, this is it. This is who I am now. My life, I've hit where I'm going to hit and I'm just going to stay at this level. That scares the hell out of me. Like I'm not even, I'm barely beginning my life journey and of growth and change, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of people are just like, yeah, they get stuck into the habitual way of doing things and their model of who they are, their ego identity, and they like it. It's comfortable. It's secure. And they just stay in that place. And I guess there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that, but it's this very limiting way of living. And I think psychedelics, just not even taking them, just seeing how they can Mm -hmm. lead these people who are in their 40s or 50s to make these big changes and reflect on their life in a new way, suggest the plasticity of our minds if we allow allow ourselves to go there. And I love this topic because my head is saying, well, I'm supposed to figure out who I am. Like society really pushes that on you that you should know who you are. You should know who you are. Like, how do you not know who you are? Which I think what you're kind of talking about is we are constantly moving. We're constantly changing. We are never Mm -hmm. static yet. Like we get this message that we should know. And I don't know if that's kind of like just this culture of, you know, the career capitalist kind of structure that says you need to know what you want to do with the rest of your life. And that's going to define you You need to know now. And you have to know when you go to college, you have to know when you get out, what job you want and like yada, yada, these pieces that try to say, like, we're going to make these definitive things that stay forever. Mm -hmm. But it's fascinating to almost like at the same time of that level of wanting to be open to change, society tells us that we should know. And I guess maybe there is some in between there where you kind of like know your core values, but who you are kind of, you know, it doesn't go a black and white switch, but maybe it just takes on different like shapes. I don't know. I'm like moving my hands trying to feel like this would maybe like. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. I think it makes sense to have a kind of a core. And uh, in some sense, you have a core, you have your personality and who you are at the deepest level. And that's not really going to change that much, but like so much can change around that. Right. Mm -hmm. With varying degrees of how healthy it is and how open and expansive it is, as opposed to contracted and, and fear based. Right. I think a lot of it is uh, letting go of fear because, mm. you know, fear is, is what creates rigidity because if you're scared and you need something to not feel scared, then you're going to cling on to it. Mm. But if you're consciously choosing, you know, what you're taking on and you're not clinging on to it for your sense of, of worthiness or identity or you, you need to survive, then life is so much free and much more free and open. You're, you're just dynamic organism that's constantly adapting and growing and changing that's what being a human should be, right? Not being a robot automaton who, you know, even though we have this gift of self-awareness and conscious action, mm-hmm. you know, just throwing that aside and living in our habits, which is most people, unfortunately. Right. I mean, our whole structure, nine to five, Monday through Friday, it's a life. It's a, it's a pattern. It's a structure. You can get very stuck mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. Fear is such a big thing that I think prevents so much human activity. Fear prevents connection. We're afraid to be our vulnerable, authentic selves. We're afraid to try these new experiences. So we stay stuck. We're afraid to take on a new identity because what does that mean about the old one? I mean, fear is a big thing, which is why I think it's fascinating that they're doing those uh, ketamine assisted psychotherapy trials, which, you know, with very traumatic things, maybe we can dampen this fear response and really talk and 
open up and create some sort of exploration around these things. But frequently fear is such a strong human biological response that really can prevent us from so much. Yeah. Maybe I'll just be Alex Honnold one day and like be rock climbing off the side of a rock with no fear response in my amygdala. (laughs) I hope that's not what it takes to be conscious. Yeah. No, I I think there's a distinction there, right? There's like fear, like of your physical safety that is valid. Mm, Then there's psychological fear of something that doesn't actually, you know, um, you're not at risk for your life. It's not a real fear. But didn't they do research that said that the brain responds directly in the same area as if it's the same experience? It does. It it is the same in the brain, but the thing is, I think it is exactly the same, but that's the bad thing. That's why you assume that this psychological fear of, oh, like, what if I talk to this person and they reject me is the same as what if they like chop my head off? Literally. Well, that's what our brain is saying. Yeah. So then how do you, how do you politely tell the brain that it's wrong? (laughs) You know, like, how do you say? For me, what it is, it's letting go. Mm. Because whatever you give attention to will amplify and grow, right? It's like, what's what's the phrase? It's like, uh, where attention goes, energy flows. Mm. And so like if, if you have a fear response and you just never listen to it, you don't give it your, you don't give it power over you, mm-hmm. you're not ruminating on it, it'll dissipate just like anything else. And I think a lot of people talk about what that means, but more in an abstract way. I, if you could, if you have the words for it, what does that actually look like when you let go of fear? Is it that these thoughts come in so much and then you say, I'm going to take up a different activity? Is it you journal or like, how do you actually let go? What's the practicalness of this? This is a good question. I think people, most people don't understand what it means to accept something or what it means to let go. Because like what I've come to through my own experience is that if you have a fear coming up, if you have to accept it is to feel it as fully as possible. Mm is to come down into your body. Where does it feel? Where is it located? And just breathe and just feel it. If your thoughts start thinking about it, like, oh, it's fear because of this and this and the whole narrative, mm-hmm. come back to the experience in the body. How do you do that? With your attention. You focus on it. I almost, you know, I want to push you because I would say it's focusing on the breath, but it's like, I feel like your brain fights you. Like you say, oh, I'm going to focus on this. And then you're thinking about yourself. And then like in two seconds before you even realize your brain has gone back to the rumination. I see. This is where meditation comes in. I mm, might be biased. I've, I've been a daily meditator since I was 18. See. Uh, yeah, mindfulness. So, We're back to mindfulness. Yeah, exactly. So this is why like, you know, having the ability to maintain your attention on something and not let it get pulled off right away, I think is an essential life skill. And I guess it might be necessary here because like for me, it's just a matter of, oh, it's like relaxing, settling, feeling into my kind of chest, heart, abdomen area. And just breathing and keeping my attention there. It's mm-hmm. almost like I'm anchored here and the emotions are just doing their thing. And I'm just okay. it's like, maybe I'll come up all then back down. Mm. And, and then after a while, it'll, it'll go away. And I've had that happen many times. Okay. And so at that time, you're focusing on your breath. Are you focusing on what are, where's your head at at that point? Is it just blank? I'm asking you what meditation is like for you. Yeah, <laughs> but for but me, I think it's important to use words for these things that are, you know, practical and digestible for someone who doesn't do meditation on their daily yeah. Life like, walk. For example, if I were to ask you, like, what does your foot feel like right now? You'd be able to tell me, right? Mm-hmm. What, what, what does your hand feel like? What does your thigh feel like? So then it's like, what does this emotion feel like? And just trying to find that sensation and then just feeling it. Just mm-hmm. trying to like, oh, like what shape is it? Is it heavy? Is it hot? Is it warm? Is it cold? Um, and just trying to feel it with your attention. 
No, then just staying with it. And then you'll notice the more you stay with it, the less intense it is. And soon it'll just kind of it'll disappear like a cloud that just like dissipates. Right. And I think that's also the objective sense, right? Again, like kind of what we talked about earlier of looking at the emotion, recognizing that that emotion is not you, that does not define you. That is not who you are and who you will be in the future. This is a moment that is occurring and we can recognize, see it in all of its intensity. We don't want to stop feeling our feet. We don't want to stop feeling our hands, nor do we want to stop feeling these emotions. But we also equally don't say that I am my foot. It sounds even silly to say it, but like when you focus on your feet, you don't suddenly become your feet, you know, unless maybe you're tripping, which at that point, you know, like let's reground. (laughs) Um, But you recognize that that's an aspect of you not all of you. And I think that if we took more of that perspective to our thoughts, we might be able to look at them in less of a strictly pure response, but maybe more of this objective pulled back sense. Mm-hmm. Totally. Totally. It's like, I love every conversation I'm going to have on this podcast going to come back to mindfulness. I think at its core of just like recognizing how to, how to be with our brain and how to be in existence with ourself in a way that doesn't negate the thoughts that are going on there, but really like sits with them. Totally. I mean, at the end of the day, mindfulness is just a way of using our ability for self-awareness to navigate life, right? It's just a way of being conscious and present and not getting lost with everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, another way to say it is like, if you're in mindfulness, your actions that you take are going to be proactive and not reactive. Mm. Because if you're in mindfulness, you'll notice um, something pulling at you. And then you're like, oh, like you're going to choose to go with it or not. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you're in reactivity mode, uh, you know, something happens and oh, boom, you're there. Boom, you're there. You're not kind of stabilized within yourself. Right. And so then you just become this externally driven machine that has no internal autonomy. right? Right. So I think mindfulness is almost like a necessary precondition for true autonomy yeah i mean the yoga sutras has this i don't know if it's it's a metaphor not necessarily an allegory uh the yoga sutras have this metaphor of our existence and our mind as if there's this river and it has all these waves and it's moving and the water's all chaotic and choppy and you try to look into the river and see your reflection and what you see is the chaos you don't actually see yourself but, you know, just like the water of our mind, when we really calm our thoughts and it becomes such a slick, you know, calm water, you're able to look into it and then see who you are. And so yeah. when our brain's getting pulled in all these different different ways, you can think of that kind of as like the chaos of the water. Of course, you're going to look into that, respond in a way that is reactive. And that's not really going to reflect who you are at your core. It's going to reflect the chaos versus totally. if we take a moment to see these thoughts, recognize that we can still keep the water calm see who we are and then respond it's it's just a whole different thing but i mean easier said than done it's a lifelong practice for sure. yeah yeah they say that it's kind of like a muscle the more that you work it the more it yep, becomes a it part of your is. normal and i think that science is really fascinating the science of mindfulness and meditation and how we're learning that you know when you I think there's studies talking about when you do more mindfulness, that area of your brain increases something. I, I look to you as if you'd know all the science research. That I... could, be the, could be the insula. Uh, so the insula is a brain region involved in bodily kind of sensations. Mm. And a lot of mindfulness practice is focused on the body, you know, typically. Um, although that's not all of mindfulness, but I think their insula is bigger in meditators, which means they have a greater connection to their bodily sensations. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, but, uh, but it's interesting, like, I think the research focuses on mindfulness for the body because that's the easiest, but I think mindfulness for thoughts and emotions is harder. You need like an advanced meditator 
to do that because you can't just get random undergrads and say like hey like meditate and be non-judgmentally and non-reactively aware of your thoughts right and then how do you measure that exactly exactly you can't i mean can you i don't i mean for that you need experienced meditators you just have to take what they say is true right yeah basically but, which yeah. has its own problems i think that you know western society really wants the control group placebo and especially when you th- in terms of funding to do this more kind of research i mean totally It'll i'm happen. gonna w- yeah, I'm going to wait for your research study one day of mindfulness meditation and good and uh, challenging trips. See yeah, if they have a difference. I'd cool. love to see that one day. Totally. Yeah, one yeah. day it'll happen, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, this has been really lovely. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I feel like had a great conversation about psychedelics and mindfulness. I'm always happy to have those. Yeah, totally. Thanks. No, it's been a lot of fun. It's a, it's a more free-flowing conversation than most of my podcast interviews. And it's like yeah. a lot of fun. Good. I'm really glad. Well, thank you so much. Cool. My pleasure. If you enjoyed today's conversation, then subscribe for new episodes released every Wednesday and follow us on Instagram at Modern Anarchy Podcast, where we open up a dialogue about all of these topics. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. And a special thanks to one of my favorite artists, Your Smith, for the intro and outro song to this show.